This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non-paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions, or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Business of Blueberries, the award-winning podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. Now, I'm excited to welcome Soren Bjorn back on today's episode. Soren's the president of Driscoll's of the Americas. He's been a frequent guest on our show. His episodes are always very popular, and I appreciate his insights and perspective on our global industry. You can certainly go back and listen to him on episodes three and four, 88 and 89. Today's episode is going to be slightly different than any one we've done before. We certainly have had Soren on as a guest in the past, but typically if a conversation goes along with any guest, we will break up that episode into two 30-minute episodes. But sometimes things get lost in a translation of the slicing and dicing of trying to figure out which part of the conversation we want for which part. And instead today, we're going to keep the whole conversation together. It's going to be a longer discussion. And I think a lot of what Soren and I discussed today, you know, fits contextually into the conversation and we're just going to keep it together. So join us for an hour. We hope you like it and let us know what you think. So Soren, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Business of Blueberries. Thanks, Casey. Glad to be back. Do it one more time. Yeah, well, like I said, it's been uh, a pleasure to have you on the show. Your episodes are uh, well listened to, and uh, I know the audience is always interested into some of that kind of straight talk that you give when you join me on the episode about how the business of blueberries working. Obviously, you have a, a bit of a perspective over the entire patch, the berry patch, um, but it's been a little bit over a year since our last episode, and so I thought we'd spend a little time having you catch us up on how things have been, maybe what's top of mind as we head into the last half of 2023. Yeah, I mean, I think since we did the first episode, you know, clearly there's been a lot of changes in the world and, and including in the world of berries and, and specifically in blueberries. You know, it has mostly turned out to be pretty good. The demand for berries has continued to rise through the pandemic. After the pandemic, we still see very, very good demand. And the businesses have grown a lot, right? You know, the blueberry business today is a lot bigger than it used to be. We've gotten you know, behind some of the issues we've had in the industry, I think there's a nice path forward where people are aligned around the idea of we've got to continue to generate more demand for berries. And that's true beyond blueberries, you know, frankly. You know, for the most part, you know, I think growers and shippers are, are doing pretty well. And so, you know, considering what has happened in the world in the last three years, we should be very grateful for where we are today. Yeah, well, and I appreciate your your leadership on a lot of that. I, one of the things that I know recently we spoke about in actually my team meeting with you about Driscoll's and the berry business, getting a chance to kind of sit down with you and talk about, you know, the, the strategy of the berry patch from Driscoll's perspective. But a common theme that you share on almost every show is that, you know, there's an expectation for this industry to delight the consumers. I thought we'd spend a little time unpacking what you mean by that, in particular, what you shared with our team when we met about where that came from for Driscoll's. As I understand from what we talked about, there was a meeting that changed the outlook for Driscoll's on how you went down this particular road to focusing on the consumer. So I thought we'd start there. Could you you know, maybe share a little bit with our audience today about what that was representing? 
Yeah, I think it's a story that we don't mind sharing. You know, there's not really any secrets in it. And I do think there are some good lessons, you know, whether it's in the produce industry and beyond. But um, the meeting you referred to was a board meeting, a Driscoll's board meeting that took place in 1989 at Meadowwood up in Napa Valley. And I think you know, your listeners will all know that Driscoll's has been in the breeding business, you know, from the day we were founded. We, we were actually in strawberry breeding before we became Driscoll's the sales and marketing company. But for the longest time, we were a strawberry company only. And um, there were members of the group that were sort of playing around with particular raspberries and blueberries were just beginning to show up a little bit. And in 1989, at this Meadowwood meeting, there were sort of four critical decisions that got made, three of which are directly oriented towards the consumer. And one was that we wanted to be a year-round berry company and so right there, you know, that, that meant we had to go outside California. We were primarily a California strawberry company. And so we didn't really have, you know, winter supply of strawberries at the time. We also decided that we wanted to be the berry patch. So we wanted to be all four berries, not just strawberries. And as I said, we were already playing a little bit with our berries. And that further took us out in the world. And so, you know, when we first got outside California, we actually went to Florida. I'm not sure most people know that. And then shortly after that, we went to Mexico and then to Chile. And now we are in you know, 24 or 25 countries around the world where Tusco's berries are being grown. And that was all driven by this desire to be you know, year-round and a full berry patch. right? And eventually, that's what made us a global company. The third thing that happened, and it used to something we were a lot more proud of than we are today, is that we wanted to have a consumer package so that we could put our brand and our name on the package that the consumers bought. Prior to 1990, most strawberries were sold in a bulk format. And so you will have listeners that will remember, you know, the, the open pine and the little mesh, you know, green basket, and then with a cellophane wrapped on top and with a rubber band, okay, that you still see it around sometimes. But that was really the business. So there was no consumer-facing brand prior to 1990. We were really a, a retailer, a trade brand. And uh, we had a couple of our executives that had actually been at Costco in Seattle flying home on Alaska Airlines, and they were served a sandwich in a, basically in a PET clamshell, right? So like, like we still get sandwiches today. And that is really the origin of Druskel's berries going into a clamshell. And of course, that allows you to put a label on it. And, you know, now we, we pretty much all do that in the industry. And so that took us from being a trade brand to being ultimately a consumer brand. The fourth decision we made that had nothing to do with consumers, but had a lot to do with, I think, how you create value in businesses. You know, prior to 1990, Joe Schools, as we know it today, had largely functioned like a co-op. The sales and marketing company really existed to generate returns back on the farm. And the, the board members and, and the owners of Driscoll's decided that, that Driscoll's should exist for the purpose of Driscoll's being successful first. Okay. Now, it does it by aligning with growers, which means you've got to have the profitable growers, but also aligning with the customers, mostly our retailers, and then you know, by delighting consumers. Right? So those are the three elements of our mission today. And what happened was that prior to 1989 and that decision, Joskos had been growing at 2 3 4% a year, but not any faster than that for a long time, over a decade. And actually, that left a lot of room for competitors that we still have today to become much more significant. But after 1989, the company 
that are growing by an average of 15% a year for 25 years straight, which means that the company doubled in size every five years, right? When you sort of multiply that over, right? And so you took this relatively small company, and when I joined in, in 2006, it was sort of in the middle of, you know, of that very rapid rise, and our revenues were you know, back in 2006, something like 650 million, and now it's over 5 billion. But that's because this team that I'm part of, that's our accountability is to create the value in Driscoll's and for the shareholders of Driscoll's, right? And so, you know, you see this a lot of times that cooperatives, true cooperatives sort of struggle because there's such a strong focus on the return back to the farm that you tend to forget about what is it that drives success for the total enterprise. And this is where, this is where delighting consumers come in, right? You know, is that, um, that it, it's pretty easy to make some trade-offs back on the farm where you're trading off productivity and lower cost and maybe less delight, okay, then that we, you know, obviously we deal with that every day. Yeah, well, and I think it's an interesting model, right? Because I think the industry being grower-driven in the, in the sense that the production is what's needed for consumers, but that facilitation that you're providing between the growers who are growing the product and the retailers who are now selling to the customer, how do you, how do you as an industry, ensure that translation of that delight curve experience so that the grower knows that what's coming into the consumer's hands is the right experience. You know, one of the, I think the really big challenges in agriculture in general is when the farmer is disconnected from the market. So you see this in a lot of parts of agriculture. I'll pick on a different industry within overall food. Let's take the meat industry, for example, right? The rancher that's raising the cattle is so far removed from what actually happens with consumers and that cattle that was raised. That's because you've got these big processes in the middle, right, that are contracting the cattle and however that pricing mechanism works, right? And what they sell the beef for, sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with what it cost of the rancher to, to raise the cattle or what actually the market opportunity was at that moment. And you saw this significantly during the pandemic, right? Where there was these significant disconnects. So I think our business model, where there is a very close connection and a very, very rapid feedback loop to the growers that are growing, you know, whichever berry it is, is extremely important. Because otherwise, it's very difficult to push the sort of delight agenda, okay? Which I think we can all hopefully buy into that if our berries are better quality and taste better, consumers will eat more, okay? That hopefully is not a sort of a leap of faith right there. But it, for the individual grower, it's, it's their farm, right? And that connectivity to the market that sometimes there's a disconnect there, right? And so I think one of the really important things for a shipper marketing company like Driscoll's is that to create that connection, right? And so we, in our mission, call that alignment. And we work on that every day. And that's everything from making sure that we have quality systems where growers can get an immediate feedback from, you know, what is the quality of the berries they picked that day to, uh, you know, frequent market updates so that we get the feedback we get from the market on our product, okay? We also have a consumer panel that we talk to very regularly. This is thousands of people that have volunteered to be on our consumer panel, and we engage with them, and we share that information back with the growers, right? So in our system, there's not really a secret as to who has the best blueberries and who has the biggest opportunity for improvement, okay? And that's true on all, on all four berries. 
there's nothing unique about blueberries in that regard, right? So creating that connection, and I don't think that big or small necessarily here makes a big difference. We see relatively small companies in our industry, in the blueberry industry, that are very connected to the market and to the customers and getting feedback. We also see others that are, don't seem to be connected at all. And so I think this is, this is really, really important. So whoever you're with as a grower is you know, pushing for understanding you know, how is the product being received in the marketplace, what are the opportunities to improve, so you can continue to improve the business. Those, those are very, very important things. Well, and I think Driscoll's, you know, you, you referred to the, I think the way those delight curves are experienced by, you know, the, the quality, the characteristics, certainly the flavor, the focus that you guys are focused on with consumer panels. But I think, you know, a lot of that being driven by now a lot more discussion around variety and variety types and the kinds of uh, experiences that consumers can expect, even on branded product like you have with the sweetest batch and others have with their other products that are differentiating almost like a tiered approach to the marketplace. Uh, how, how do you see that evolving? I mean, right now we're, we're you and others are seeing that whether that's uh, a variety type, you know, different growers in different regions have different varieties, but as this plays out, where is this going five, 10 years from now, from your perspective, as it relates to that delight curve combined with the improvements we're seeing in varieties around the world, coming in around the world? Yeah, I mean, I'll still start a little bit with, you bring up the light curves, okay, probably explain that to people what you mean is, so for each of our four berries, we have a, what we call a product leader that's responsible for the long-term supply plan for that berry, right? So they're essentially responsible for sort of writing, I call it a supply strategy, right? And then saying, okay, this is what we are today and this is what we want to be in the future. We have uh, more recently adopted this concept of delight curves where every variety planted in every region essentially has like a, call it a delight score, primarily driven by flavor. And it is their job, the product leader's job, is to improve the delight over time. So we literally can draw it out on a supply curve, okay? And then we can rate the quality of that supply curve and then see if it's improving over time. And of course it is because that's the objective, okay? So that requires, you know, access to genetics and varieties. Uh, sometimes it's growing regions, you know, a variety that's excellent in central Mexico may not have as much flavor in Peru or vice versa. And the same would be true in, you know, obviously in the United States, we all experience that. And so it isn't just about as easy as picking a variety. But what it does do is um, it creates a really strong discipline because the easiest way a lot of times to improve the future curve is to eliminate the worst varieties you have in your system, right? And so this has for us created this discipline about really being as critical as, as we reasonably can be to get the worst varieties out of the system. And we are absolutely convinced, and I think that the evidence is there, is that when you do that, then the demand keeps going up over time. The whole Swedish batch concept was something that we had been kicking around for, you know, for a number of years. We had tried before and not really succeeded at it in this country. We have had a Swedish batch, or call it a super premium offer, in our European operations, particularly in the UK, for more than 15 years. To this day in the UK, it makes up about Certainly, strawberry is 10, 15% of the total category. And if you now think about what 10, 15% of the total category in blueberries looks like, that's a pretty interesting segment, right? If you can get to that. You know, we always have people that want to, they want to try to go 52 weeks a year and stuff like that. And I, that's the, I think that's the risk, right? You know, is that you, 
you get so focused on you, it always has to be available because it's successful, right? But then as you get more and more on the edges of the season or you go to marginal production regions, you can't quite deliver on the promise. And that would be the sure way to ruin it, right? So we all have to do, if you want to participate in that, be disciplined about that. And I think you see, and this is a little bit unique to Blueberries, is that they are definitely companies and brands that are trying to get into the space, but only by delivering on an element. And in, in Blueberries, that's particularly by calling things jumbo, but then not having the flavor, right? So, so it looks like the super premium product, but when a consumer eats the product and has the, that experience, it doesn't really deliver on the promise, right? Because the flavor is, in the end, what it's all about. And so... There's no regulations here or anything like that, right? but that's the sort of risk, okay? And if we do it ourselves to our own brand, then we will deteriorate the value of what we've created, right? And so we try to be really disciplined about that. You know, it's fresh fruit, you know, you have the natural variability that you have to deal with, so you also have to be realistic. But I think if we can uh, stay collectively sort of reasonably disciplined, you know, you really have sort of a third category. You, know, you have your conventional blueberry offer, you have your organic offer, and then you can have this super premium offer. And I think the threshold for what is in super premium today will definitely be higher and different in three years and again in five years and so forth, just because of all the new genetics that's coming, right? That raises the bar on fruit size, crunch, and flavor. And those are the things that you know, consumers really want. Well, I was in a previous episode speaking to Court and uh, Oscar from Fall Creek about that, uh, you know, that, that the super premium category has an evolution of becoming super, super premium. And when wanting to know, you know, how much more premium and super can we get? Because it, in many ways, is, is arriving at a place where it's, it's really good. And, and of course, there's improvements that are being made even on that. But when you look 10 years out, and that's my same question to you that I had for them, is, you know, how much more premium does it get? What are the characteristics of that long-term future and I think when I was pushing court, you know, does it up and to include genetics that are improving the health benefits? Like where, where else can blueberries go in order to, you know, make things even more premium than they are today? Well, I think, I mean, the reality, I think we, if we look at our business in that segment is that we are so far from being able to fulfill the demand in a consistent way that it's as far as it's really only a handful, a little bit more than a handful of our customers that even get the offer and most of our customers don't get it, it doesn't really exist in the clubs today, truly, right? So that's a huge segment of our retail business. Our, I mean, the industry's retail businesses in the clubs, and there is no super premium offer in the clubs yet. So I think this has a long runway. And then what might be an 18 millimeter minimum standard today may becomes 20 millimeter tomorrow, but may have a minimum bricks of 13 or 14, may become 15 or 16, right? So this becomes harder to, to do it and deliver on it. So there's a little bit of sort of that going on. And then, you know, the big, big, big opportunity right now is to figure out how to do this in the summertime. This doesn't really exist today in the summertime. You know, starting now, we, we just ended our Swedish Best Blueberries. I think they're ending very, very soon, okay? And we won't be able to consistently deliver it. And there won't be anything by the time we get into late June and July and then August, okay? But that's true for all the berries, okay? In, in Blackberries, we have already ended it for this year here in, in early May. And there won't be anything again for several months. Okay, I think it's okay that it sort of comes and goes. I don't think that's a problem. But the big opportunity is, can you get an 18-millimeter blueberry in the Pacific Northwest that has great crunch and an unbelievable flavor? I mean, of course you can. Okay, It just is not available today. 
And certainly companies like Fall Creek will be working very, very hard to try to solve that. Yeah. Well, and I think you talked on previous episodes about, you know, one of the biggest parts of the market is anticipate the consumer changes. And then as an industry, we help to facilitate that. And I think, you know, providing them with a great quality berry is a part of that. But what other consumer changes do you see in the coming years that we need to be getting ahead of and hopefully, you know, facilitate those changes for the anticipation of a consumer change? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it'd be very important, I think, for anybody that's in this industry to pay really a close attention to the generations that will be the biggest generations of consumers, because they're very different than the boomers and the exes, right? You know, in terms of what are they like, where do they shop, how do they shop, how do they engage with food, what are their expectations? And, you know, there's lots of stories about, you know, less brand loyalty and transparency and, you know, I mean, on and on and on, right? But as always, is understanding the consumer. And what we clearly see, and that's not you know, unique to us, okay, I mean, you can, you can get all sorts of consultants come and tell you about this, okay, is how these younger generations, they are so different, okay? And, and I'm sure our parents said that about us, okay, that we were so different. And that's the way it is, okay? But you got to adapt to that, right? And so, you know, what are some of the things that, that are really, really important? I mean, clearly, sustainability is increasingly important, right? And I sort of started out by saying, well, it was one of the innovations we used to be really proud of was the clamshell. It is probably one of the innovations we would love to run away from today if that was a good alternative, right? Why? Well, because of consumer expectation. Much stronger in other markets at this point in time. But I think history will tell you that what those kinds of consumer trends that are very prevalent today in Europe to the point that you know, single-use plastic is getting outlawed on many, many categories and berries is sort of close, but maybe get to hang in there. Other countries has a plastic tax. We pay plastic taxes, for example, in Germany. Those things are coming our way. And what I try to tell my colleagues about in this industry, okay, whether it's on the Strawberry Commission board that I sit on or, you know, our audiences is that unlike Europe, don't wait for the feds to come and tell you what to do. Because in this country, you know, that's, you know, we, we can't sort of agree on too many things at sort of the federal level. But all it takes is California and New York decides that single-use plastic is no longer going to be allowed. And what are we all going to do? Those are the biggest markets, right? So where most of the consumers are in that. And certainly a lot of the bears were in the case of California, but most of the production is that. And so we will have no choice but to change. And then, then you end up having to change on the terms of some regulator that, that doesn't really understand your business as opposed to trying to solve the problem ourselves. And there's, there's different elements of sustainability, probably, I mean, plastic, where that's the uses in the field, in the farming, or of course the clamshells, water, depending a little bit on where you're farming, and then you know carbon emissions. You know those are all things that we need to worry a lot more about, and in part because the consumer is very likely to demand it of us. And if there's enough noise in those generations of consumers, then the regulators are going to feel empowered to go and take action. These are not theoretical discussions in a state like California. These are actually happening, right? 
No, it's an issue. I, I, you know, I think about, you know, the work you and, and the coalition of the industry, including uh, working with the California Strawberry Commission, have done on the uh, Berry Sustainable Initiative, the commitment into 2025 and the work that you all are doing to try and address that, to your point, because it's better to get ahead of that than to be caught, you know, surprised by the changes that are underway. You know, and I think, too, you know, Driscoll's as a model relies on that strong point of differentiation. You know, you have products in Europe where and I think introduced here in the North America market uh, with paper. But maybe describe where you're starting to differentiate under that expectation of change with some of your product offerings that are are now more paper based. Yeah, I mean, uh, in our European business where we have felt a lot of pressure on the plastic packaging we have begun a transition into a is a paperboard pack that has it has a heat seal so it's not plastic free but it's a 98% reduction in plastics you can still see the product right from the top down not from the sides it's actually a very very attractive package and so you know obviously that means you know you have to have pack lines and you have to have the technology to seal that particular package and stuff like that and that's rolling out you know all over europe but it, it ends up sort of spilling into this market because we have, for our European business, we have a lot of supply out of Peru, for example. So there are now, you know, those kinds of pack lines going into the operations in Peru, which then unlocks the opportunities to then go and try it out in the U.S. because we get lots of deliveries from Peru as well here in the U.S. And so you will continue to see us experiment with this. Now, in the end, you know, it has to be, you know, something that you know, it can't ruin the economics of, of the business that we are in. And it certainly can, in other ways, contribute to, to waste, like fruit waste, for example. This is a big problem, for example, in strawberries, is that when we have a bigger container, right, because strawberries are just heavier and bigger, they're finding the right package. So, you know, it's an old full transparency, our European colleagues, they don't actually have a strawberry package yet that's in the same format as the other three berries, right? right? But just because they haven't really been able to figure out how to make that package work. But there are lots of people working on it, right? And so, so I think you're going to see more and more of that. And it's not something we have to align around as an industry. Maybe aligning around the actual pack sizes we're going to be selling in which is a much better idea. But the packaging itself, you know, I mean, we're still at a, at a phase where everybody has an opportunity to innovate. And we are certainly not the only ones doing this. I see many of our competitors trying the same thing. And you see other commodities that are trying as well. So there will eventually be some breakthroughs and then eventually that'll be the scale that drives down the cost, right? So, you know, we buy well over a billion plastic clamshells a year. Of course, they're really, really cheap because we buy way over a billion. And when we then want to go and buy 100,000 of these paperboard things, of course, they're expensive, you know. But you got to lean into it. Otherwise, you're going to be told what to do, which is, you know, never fun. We have a lot more to cover here, but it's time for our crop report. This busy time of year, we have several states joining us each week as their harvest begins. So here, once again, is your blueberry crop report. It's time for your blueberry crop report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry growing areas. Today, you'll hear from Darren Wheeler in Georgia, Jody McPherson in North Carolina, Matt McCree in New Jersey, Pat Gowen in Indiana, Elise Oliver in California, TJ Hafner in Oregon, Alan Schreiber in Washington, Mario Ramirez in Mexico, and Luis Vegas in Peru. This was recorded on June 7th, 2023. All right, good afternoon. My name is Darren Wheeler. I'll be giving the uh, crop report from Alma, Georgia. The Georgia highbush season is wrapped up with the exception of a few scattered legacy. We are now primarily picking bright wool with reports of some growers starting to pick powder blue. Currently, 
There is a balance of hand and machine harvesting, but I would expect labor shortages as New Jersey starts up. Uh, I would expect consistent volumes to continue for the next seven to 10 days and then start to fall off as we near the end of the 2023 fresh season. Georgia has managed to dodge uh, the afternoon showers, but there is a chance of afternoon showers for the next three to five days, which would cause uh, adverse conditions for the fresh harvest. The current forecast for Georgia is 55 million pounds of fresh and 20 million pounds of process. And that is my report. Hey, good afternoon. This is Jody McPherson reporting for the state of North Carolina. Currently, we're uh, wrapping up our mid-season varieties of New Hanover, Duke. We're in our peak of legacy. North Carolina is currently hitting record numbers day to day, but those numbers will dramatically decrease starting the weekend, beginning of next week, entering into the second round. Some growers are finishing the second round of legacy and um, anticipating a sharp decrease in production next week. Rabbit eyes, mostly powder blue, are still 10 to 14 days out. Weather conditions continue to be favorable for blueberry harvesting. We are seeing that labor is uh, departing, going to New Jersey, but do uh, anticipate having enough to to maybe finish the second round as third round will mostly be machine harvested. That's the North Carolina uh, report. This is Matt McCree reporting from New Jersey. Uh, Harvest is kind of just kicking off this week. I had a couple farmers kind of just getting into their Duke variety. I know we're going to start tomorrow and a couple other larger farms in the area to start tomorrow and Friday. So we're kicking off here. Weather's favorable. Labor is adequate. Crews are, are bigger than last year from what I'm hearing. Everything else is kind of waiting to be seen. So poundage-wise, we're about 38 million for fresh and 4 million for process. That's 42 million total. And that's my report. This is Pat Gunn from the state of Indiana forecasting for the current week of June 4th. Uh, certainly uh, not, not much has changed over the last week. The weather has been hot and very dry here, um, although we are heading into a few cooler days. Um, the fruit continues to size nicely. To date, uh, we're not experiencing any uh, pest issues or disease issues. Uh, we continue to monitor the traps for those things. The current estimate is still at 3.5 million pounds, 3.3 fresh, 200,000 process. Uh, I will have an update after tomorrow's meeting um, with the Indiana growers. And that concludes my report. Good morning, everyone. This is Elise Oliver with the California Blueberry Commission. I'm here to give the weekly report for California. We have not adjusted our numbers this week. We are still we're going to hit our 55 million pounds fresh and 25 million pounds process for a total of 80 million pounds. This past week, we're finally seeing harvest ramp up with some of our mid-season varieties coming off. Our growers have reported that the volume on the bushes is definitely there. It's just we still are looking for that heat to, to get the fruit to ripen up. Um, our weather 
this past week and the current week that we're in has been um, a little strange here in the Central Valley. We're in the upper 80s, lower 90s, but it's been really overcast. Um, and we've actually had a little bit of rain um, the past couple of days. And this weekend, there's supposed to be some actual rain showers and not just sprinkles. So we'll see how that ends up affecting the crop. And then also cherries here in California is also behind. And so I don't think that we're having any labor problems right now, but once cherries start ramping up, there might be the potential that we have to compete with them for labor. And so that may impact obviously how much fresh volume there is. Yeah, that's the report for California. This is TJ Hafner doing the crop report for Oregon. Uh, weather's been great here this past week. Our daytime highs were in the mid 70s to low 80s with no rain. Uh, the 10-day forecast, it looks like this will continue. Um, so we've had really great pollination weather. Bees are mostly all removed from the field, some still trickling out. Fruit set looks good with few exceptions. There are some legacy fields that are spotty. I've also heard a report last week that Duke looks this way and from one grower. It's not something we've seen in our Duke yet. Yesterday, we found some Duke fruit that's starting to color uh, in the Willamette Valley. Uh, with that being said, we may have some fruit coming out of Oregon the last week of June, but definitely the first week of July, that really picking up. Disease and insect pressure is very low, uh, even in our organic fields. As I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, we do have higher than normal shock virus in some varieties. So far, in all indicators from our labor contractors are that we'll have adequate people to start handpicking at least early on in the season this year. Just, yeah, overall things look very good, and I anticipate higher than originally projected volumes coming out of Oregon this year. This is the Washington State report from Alan Schreiber. Weather conditions continue to be dry across the state with temperatures ranging from below normal to above normal. For example, eastern Washington is expected to have a high of 97 degrees today, Wednesday, and 79 degrees for a high in three days later. Pollination is complete and bees are out of the field in western Washington. Fruit is sizing up there. Now that pollination is over, growers say pollination is season range from fair to excellent, which is a slight downgrade in assessment of pollination on the west side of the state. In eastern Washington, fruit in early and mid-season varieties have turned blue. Fruit seems to be average to above average. Harvest of fruit under cover is starting in eastern Washington with open field harvest starting around June 20th with a widespread harvest in eastern Washington starting the last week of June. Insect and fungal disease pressure across the state is considered to be low. When I talked to one eastern Washington grower about what he expected for SWD pressure this year, his reply was, we're not worrying about SWD this year. I hear mixed reviews about expectations regarding labor. Some growers report little to no concern, while others believe that competition from the large cherry crop will create labor shortages. Asparagus harvest is winding down, so that will release workers for both crops. That is the Washington report. Hi, everyone. For those who doesn't know me, I'm Mario from Mexican Blueberries Exporters Association. And here are the reports for Mexico. We're almost finishing the, the season a couple of weeks later. Uh, that's because of the, the climate in the northern region that delay our season, as I told you, two or three weeks. Um, for this week, the 
volumes decreased 25% respect in previous week. And the volume exported to the United States was 3 million and 200,000 pounds and another 116,000 pounds for other de destinations, including Japan, Netherlands, United Kingdom, and mainly Europe and Asia. From all the volume exported, 20% was organic blueberries, around 660,000 pounds. And our frozen blueberries volume decreased too. Uh, this week decreased 75%, and, and the volume was 20,000 pounds. We are representing around 1% of the total United States importations in, in frozen blueberries. That's all in, in Mexico report. Hello, this is Luis with the crop report from Peru until the end of week 22, which is the week uh, going from May 29th until June 4th. The Peruvian season 2023-2024 started in week 18, and until the end of week 22 of the season, Peru has shipped a total of 3.9 million pounds of fresh blueberries worldwide. From this total volume, 45% has been shipped to the US, 37% to Europe, 2% to China, and 16% to other destinations. Also, from the total volume shipped so far this season, 17% have been organics. What happened during week 22? Well, a, a total of 840,000 pounds were shipped from Peru of fresh blueberries. 30% of the volume shipped during week 22 has been sent to the US with approximately 250,000 pounds, which are expected to arrive at the US market during the last week of June. 44% of the volume shipped during week 22 has been sent to Europe, 5% to China, and a reminder 22% to other destinations, including Brazil, Chile, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Hong Kong, India, Singapore, Thailand, and Uruguay. Well, thanks so much to our busy growers and colleagues who take time in these reports as a reminder. You can go to the new USHBC website where you'll find our Data and Insight Center to see more data of what's happening in this blueberry industry, including the USDA shipping price and movement, the retail category performance, retail sales reports, and much, much more. Make sure you go to ushbc.org forward slash data to check that out. Okay, back to today's episode with Soren Bjorn. I kind of want to shift gears because we're going to, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about the crop report like we always do in the uh, podcast. But what, what's your sense of how things are shaping up in the summer? One of the episodes we had uh, discussed with you just how dramatically, and I think we're seeing this now, the seasonality of this industry is going to change over time to the point where that summer season is going to be different than anything where it used to be the peak, no longer the peak. We're starting to see that now already. You kind of predicted that a couple of years ago, but that demand period is still going to be high based, certainly based on the experience consumers had in, in keeping pace with supply coming in week to week. So how are things shaping up for the summer this year? What's demand look like? What does that mean for consumers and certainly producer profitability? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, our take is that it's, it's quite strong, you know, that the consumer is very engaged in our category. As a berry patch, we have been quite short for a long time, right? We have had a very wet winter, particularly in California, where a lot of the supply you know, typically comes from. So that impacts the whole berry patch. It's been very, very cold in a lot of the growing regions. And so things are, you know, really delayed. 
That's certainly true on the West Coast. Also true down in, I was in Sinaloa recently, also very delayed down there. That's not necessarily great for the domestic producers, okay, but Sinaloa is delayed. But the demand has been very, very strong. And I think you are definitely seeing is that we have this, you know, very, very significant amount of volume coming out of Peru that creates this sort of underlying demand that's there every day. So as we came off of Peru and into Chile and Mexico, the demand stayed very, very high and, and prices were quite solid and good here into the spring. We're still seeing that. I mean, we are in Florida and Georgia and the Carolinas as well. And and the, the demand so far has been really good and prices are really solid. Okay, And if you feel like we have good demand for the volume we have, I don't see any reason to expect that that's going to change. And we may have a little bit of the benefit this year in blueberries that other California crops, like the California cherry crop, will be pretty light uh, here. You know, that's typically coming up here and, you know, very, very soon. On the other hand, it looks like the cherry crop in the Pacific Northwest is quite strong. Then you got all the stone fruit and the grapes, and they will all be very late this year. I mean, I'm sitting in Watsonville today, and I would say our strawberry crop in Watsonville is four weeks behind. Okay, and that is a lot. I mean, I've never seen four weeks behind. I've never seen... When you look at the, the data and the, the chill and the, the, the data uh, from Watsonville, this is the coldest I, that I've ever seen. So things are extremely late. It's coming now, beautiful sunshine, and there's no rain in the forecast, okay? And so it's, things are happening now. But we are at a, in a much stronger market here seeing in mid-May than we would typically be you know, seeing in mid-May. You know, by now, the, the market will have adjusted to summer pricing, and strawberries is you know, typically the summer fruit that goes first. It hasn't really gotten going yet. So I think that leaves quite a bit of room for blueberries. I think most retailers are behind on overall volume, right? And they're going to want to try to make it up. So I think, you know, working with your retailer and making sure that they're investing in the category and investing their margin in the category to get things going is, is very, very important. And um, you know, blueberries now have just gotten, it's, it's so big that this is a really, really important item for the retailers, right? And so I think that's the other thing that sort of happened since we first got together is that it hasn't quite caught strawberries yet, but it's getting really close, okay? And in some retailers, it has actually happened, okay? And I can't tell you how many of our customers that tell us that, you know, one pound or two pound strawberries is a number one item in the entire store. But you can imagine the day when the number one item in the entire store is a pint or an 18-ounce blueberry. So I think you have the retail support to go and be successful. Obviously, you know, weather is always going to play a factor, okay? And so... And supply too. I mean, to your point about where retailers are positioning blueberries amongst the berry patch, but certainly as more supply and better qualities and better varieties continue to make their way into the market on a more consistent basis. You know, one of the things you were a part of and, and the industry participated in an industry-wide strategic plan where the vision statement that, you know, we simplified down to a very specific empowering the industry to make blueberries the world's favorite fruit that you were a party to. So talk to me about how you believe we've made progress since the 2021 change of that vision statement for USHBC. You know, how are we doing in that? From your perspective, you just talked a little bit about how retailers are seeing blueberries today, but what progress have we made from your perspective in positioning blueberries to be the world's favorite fruit? You know, from my perspective, the two most important things that needed to happen, okay, and that I've been advocating for over the years is that we need to have enough funding to get our message out there, right? And, and driving the demand and, and continue to improve the image of blueberries and keep that in top of mind for consumers. So the, the funding mechanism is in place. I think that was, I think both generous, but it was also a good foresight on all the people that stepped up. We are just part of that. There are certainly people that are much bigger than us that did it. 
So that's great. You know that that allows us to do what you and your team is doing. Okay, and I you know had a chance to meet some of your staff here very recently, and you got some really solid people on the team, and they're going to help out the industry. So I think that was the first thing, and I would say that that's running. Okay, and we just got to keep doing it. We got to keep refining it and figure out you know what's working, right? So that's always the way it is with marketing, and sometimes things work, and other times you have good ideas and they, they don't really work out. Okay, but that's the nature of it. Okay. And I think if we can be really successful with that, then there's an opportunity to increase the, I think, the funding even more. And maybe we don't want the funding to be as, as high as avocados, okay? But, you know, I, I definitely believe that we, we would want it to be bigger than it is today. Growth will take care of some of that, right? You know, the, the growth, particularly out of Peru, will fund a lot more. So that piece is sort of there, it's in places up and running. And, um, you know, industry members need to be engaged with you and your team on, you know, what do they feel like is working and what's not? And you need to educate all of us on what's working and what's not, right? So that, that, that piece is good. Well, and I, one of the things included in that funding was an investment in data for measurement and evaluation of the success of the category over time. And, and Driscoll's and others have uh, committed to a platform now. If we just launched it a couple of weeks ago now. It's the uh, Fresh Data Insights platform for blueberries. A big evolution for us as USHBC to get to a place where we've got something that other commodities have done before us, strawberries, avocados, mangoes, and others. But talk to me a little bit about, you know, maybe Driscoll's experience with the platform, but your support for this initiative going forward, having finally got this thing launched and out the door and, and available now for blueberries. Yeah. And so that was sort of my second point, okay, which is that, that we have been pushing for, I've been pushing for is that. I don't understand why anybody wouldn't rather have some idea about what is going on in the industry as they're trying to plan their own business, right? You know, a great degree of uncertainty makes it very, very difficult to manage your business and that is any business. And certainly ours which has this natural variability. So in strawberries, we have this in the California Strawberry Commission. You know, we have really, really good data. We have, you know, a great acreage report that gets updated pretty regularly. We have a weekly forecast. We have a pick sheet, right? And I would say you have nearly unanimous participation in the industry, right? And certainly all the big players are participating. And that is definitely the vision for the blueberries, right? Is that, that we get that. Some of the government data, uh, particularly USDA data, has frankly gotten a lot worse in the last couple of years. They changed some things about what they did. And I can tell you in the, in the berries where there are no commission, where there's a sizable import, for example, the blackberries and raspberries, where you know, most of the production comes from Mexico, more than half the production comes from Mexico. And the USDA data has gotten unreliable from a week to week basis. It's gotten way harder to manage those businesses. So the good news is that it's, it's mandatory reporting because it crosses the border, so it gets reported. But we, we need to get everyone, I say everyone, we need to get all the big players to participate here because this allows some degree of certainty in our industry which allows all of us to better plan the business. So nobody is advantaged if we or somebody else that has a significant market share goes out at a price that's either too high or too low. Because if we go out too high, then we won't sell all the fruit, and then we've got to turn around, and then we've got to lower the price below the average market price, right? And then as soon as we do that, some retailer or other customer is going to use that information and go to one of our competitors and say, oh, well, we just got this price from Driscoll's, you know, and then next thing, everybody's sort of spinning down in the price. Obviously, we go out with too low a price 
and generate too much demand. One, we can't fill all the orders. And two, we're signaling to the market that the price should be lower. And the likelihood that we send the wrong price signals to the market is way higher if we don't understand what the volume is. And so if we are now sitting here guessing as to what the volume is going to be, the risk that we're going to get the market wrong is very, very high. And so I applaud all of our you know, competitors that joined in, and I really encourage our competitors that have not joined in yet to get on board as soon as possible. And um, you know, if they want to talk to me about it personally, why I believe this is a good idea, I'll take that phone call anytime. I just think it's absolutely critical. And if we end up in the long run missing large pieces of the data for the whole year or for part of the year, the value of what we are doing is, is significantly uh, less than what it could be. And that would be a shame because, you know, we got the infrastructure, we're now we're doing it, we got people that are reporting, and um, you don't have to worry about that your data gets out. I have never thought about worrying about our data that goes to the California Strawberry Commission. And we have no idea what the individual brands or shippers are doing, but having that visibility just makes it so much easier to manage the business. And the other thing is, it actually allows you to point your customers to a data source and says, well, look, I mean, like right now in strawberries, you know, I can tell you all our customers are pretty unhappy with our ability to fill the strawberry demand in the last couple of months, right? Because of all the weather we had. But we have an independent source of volume information that we can just point to and say, well, go and look at the California Strawberry Commission data and see how far behind we are as an industry. It isn't just our salesperson that's telling you that, sorry, you know, like we are short of volume, we can't fill your orders. Okay, I mean, just go and look at the data, right? And that's very, very helpful. But again, that requires that you get 80 plus percent participation. You know, you can't have 40 or 50% participation because you're going to have too many holes. And the, the non-participants at the moment, you know, in some instances, it represent a high percentage of certain deals. And, and that, that's not very helpful if we can't see that. Well, uh, as we kind of round things up here, I want to give some time to just discussing, you know, from your perspective, you know, where we're going from here. As you look out into the globe of the industry, we're trying to make blueberries the world's favorite fruit. What's next for Driscoll's? You know, what, what's next from your perspective in the category? What should we be looking forward to from your perspective? Well, I mean, certainly blueberries is becoming incredibly global. I mean, we have been, I think, quite surprised at some of the markets where we've done extremely well. For example, China, we are both importing unfortunately not from the US, okay, but also uh, producing inside the country. And the demand for really high quality blueberries and the reward for that, it's, it's kind of like cherries. The highest, highest price blueberries we sell all year is uh, blueberries grown in China for the Chinese market. It's hard to imagine, okay, but that's the way it is. And I think that's a good example of how, how global has gotten, right? You know, if you go to Morocco and the plantings are incredible and Clearly, genetics will continue to play a very, very important role. Sort of the leading breeding programs, you know, will be in, uh, I suspect, in pretty high demand. So if you don't have your own, how do you get access to something? I think one of the things that is a little worrisome in the domestic blueberry industry is that you no longer really have top-notch blueberry breeding programs outside of Florida. So really, the, the high chill program, so it's that genetics that's that everybody so desperately wants, I don't see 
that there are these high caliber breeding programs. I mean, I say by high caliber, I mean relative to the commercial private breeding programs that are out there today, whether that's Fall Creek or Driscoll's or Mountain Blue and, you know, Planasa. And, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And, you know, I think that is a bit of a risk to the industry. This is not a problem we've had in strawberries, for example. We've had two of the leading breeding programs in the world, the public university programs, University of Florida, University of California, Davis. It feels like in blueberries that are sort of fallen by the wayside. And I would expect, okay, and you may not see me as a, generally as a supporter of this, but I am a supporter of this because I find that you've got to give farmers the opportunities to make whatever choice they want to make, you know, and not force them into the hands of having to be in a marketing company like Driscoll's or Nature Ipe or somebody else, that that's the choice that they want to make because it's a better deal. But I think you could easily find in, in this industry domestically is that you almost don't have a choice out in the future because the genetics is strictly controlled by the private companies. We're going to continue to do what we're doing. We're going to do it the best job we can. That's our competitive advantage. We're not shying away from that. But I think as an industry, that could be a, a real problem. And so there are different ways to do it, okay? It doesn't have to be a completely publicly funded, okay? It could be public-private, and, and maybe the, you know, this commission has a role to play in all of that. So I think that's something to talk about for sure. You know, I, I, I do think that I don't think we can do this podcast without talking about uh, you know, Peru, and I personally feel like there's a day of reckoning coming in Peru. The the volumes are getting to levels that are, you know, it's not going to be that easy to place that kind of volume at a decent price. And we obviously seen the prices started coming down, not to the average price of so, you know, the domestic industry, but it's getting closer and closer. And at some point, that would be a little bit the same thing, is that there would be growers and shippers that don't have access to the most competitive genetics. And they're going to have a very difficult time surviving. And so that, that day will come. I think clearly the role of Chile in the North American market is already changing dramatically, mostly because of Peru. And uh, I think that trend is going to continue. I personally am very optimistic about the domestic industry. So the domestic industry that produces from you know, May through September will have a very bright future if it can elevate the quality of its offer. And it doesn't have to be like drastic over time, but you know, but just continue to improve, improve, improve. The demand for that product will be very, very strong because the, the volumes that will be available before and after the domestic industry will be very, very significant. Sinaloa is definitely going to continue to grow because it sits in a good spot in terms of the market where you know, Central Mexico is pretty much done and Chile is completely out of the market. And, and there aren't that many options domestically. You know, I think coastal California, which can produce that time of year, is not that competitive. Baja doesn't have any water that can also compete at time of year. So then your desert leaves. So then you have, of course, have Florida and Florida will continue you could, to continue to improve. But there's a lot of room. There's a big market. Okay. You know, Mexico can fill you know, a lot of things to the, to the West. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic about this industry, but not every region is going to be a winner. Okay. And that's true globally as well. There are other things happening, right? The huge plantings in Morocco are taking out a lot of the industry in Spain, for example. You know, that's a similar situation. You've got a lot of competition now between Peru and South Africa and quite a few growers in South Africa that's not going to make it. And so, you know, I think one of the opportunities is to continue to improve access to markets for everybody, really. So we're very optimistic about it, okay? And, and, and we're going to continue to invest heavily in this industry. Well, I always enjoy a sit-down conversation with Soren, whether it's on a podcast or I get some time with him at his office. But I think, you know, what 
I hope we take away from this episode is, is for a company like Driscoll's, you know, oftentimes that conversation of success begins with a question of who do we want to be? And in the case of Driscoll's, you could hear him describe it was going to be a year round supplier, the full berry patch with brand recognition. And then the things just took off. And I think for us at USHBC and certainly as an industry, you know, we ask ourselves that question and we've come up with a vision that describes blueberries as being the world's favorite fruit. We've cast that vision. And I think you're starting to see the pieces that are starting to come together for us as an industry that's starting to fulfill that expectation. And so I hope you caught that for Driscoll's. That was obviously back in 1989, uh, where he was describing that board meeting. But for us as USHBC, you know, there's a lot that we can accomplish together. Things that we're talking about today and data and things that we're doing in marketing that's different. The lifestyle brand that a blueberry can become and certainly the ways that we can annualize increasing opportunities for growth for blueberries around the world and taking our, our success here in the U.S. and teaching that game plan to others. I think there's tremendous opportunity and certainly a lot of what we heard in our conversation with Soren today. I hope you like this long form. Uh, please tell us what your thoughts are. You know, take a moment to send me a note or, or leave a comment. Uh, we would love to hear how you felt about the, the long form version of this conversation with Soren. And of course, we appreciate you listening and our audience and those of you who have appreciated these kinds of sit down conversations with folks like Soren. But that's it for episode 138. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the Business of Blueberries. <music>